Hello again, everybody. I am your host, Dan Fuller, and welcome to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. Woohoo! Yeah, big up. I'm joined again by Sam Fisher. Fisher, how's it going? Very well, very well. Hey, everyone. Um, anything else to say, or is just just a quick hello? Uh, the buds are out, you know, the birds are singing. <laughs> <laughs> I am sitting at my computer naked as the day I was born. <laughs> no. Yeah, I've got wearing clothes as well, as it so happens. <laughs> so, so, listeners, you're listening to two naked men introducing <laughs> <laughs> Really stripping away the bullshit um, and just cutting straight to the hard talk. <laughs> so we've got something slightly different today, have we, Dan? Have we? Yeah, we do, yeah. So as the kind of podcast progresses, we're kind of expanding ways we can talk about literature and people who are doing, quote-unquote, literary uh, things or literary exercises in places that are ne- not necessarily in the arena of books. And today I am joined by... Uh, producer on the video game Disco Elysium. Now Disco Elysium is a game that was released last year. It won multiple awards, um, Game of the Year awards, and it is a deeply textual, weird, psychedelic um, ride. And I am joined by a producer called Cosmos from the development team who are from Tallinn in Estonia. Talk about the game and the kind of, I guess, the mission of literature in the 21st century and how these techniques can kind of branch out into other forms of media. So it's a kind of, it's, it's we're trying something new, but it's it's a really exciting conversation and I'm really looking forward to you guys listening to it. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, um, yeah. we kind of go from talking about sort of game systems to like the Russian constructivists of the 1910s so it's quite a quite a broad discussion and i, I did back try in the to, motherland back in the motherland <laughs> <laughs> i had to cut out a lot of me fanboying as well <laughs> manifestoing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 but there, there's still a bit of manifestos left in so yeah yeah well enjoy yeah enjoy everybody enjoy Today we have a very special episode of Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. Uh, I am joined today by a writer and producer on the computer game Disco Elysium. Uh, welcome, Cosmos. Hello, Dan. Nice to be here. Before we get into it, I just want to give our listeners a little bit of background as to why uh, we have a video game themed episode. Now, Disco Elysium is a game which, for want of using a pretentious term, I think achieves real kind of literary heights in both the world, the narrative, uh, the dialogue, and, and, and indeed the art. It's, it's a huge amount of writing in the game. I read somewhere at Cosmos there was a million odd yeah. lines of dialogue is that right yeah, yeah that's uh, that's that's about right a million right. words a million words okay so that's serious business of of content so uh, do you want to give the rundown cosmos of the get of, of how the game starts or, or shall i do uh, it um yeah, you'll do it I've, I've done it so many times <laughs> <laughs> okay so in disco elysium you wake up in a hotel room that is trashed. There are empty bottles of alcohol everywhere. 
the window's been smashed. So there's a record that is been broken and playing on kind of like a weird scratchy repeat. You're in your pant and you feel like death. And what's more, you can't remember how you got there. You can't even remember your name. The first few minutes of the game are putting on your clothes and trying to sort of get yourself together. As you kind of leave your hotel room, you have a, a short interaction with a character who later on become significant i'm trying to keep this spoiler free for anyone who will play the game having having listened to the podcast but you arrive downstairs in the hotel and are met by a gentleman who says good morning officer i've been dispatched by another precinct to help you with the case and that's how the game begins so you are an amnesiac policeman thrown in to try and solve a crime which is potentially a lynching while all the while going through this experience of self-discovery there's it's not a linear sense of discovery either i don't it cosmos it's no no in video games you may or you may not have uh, this uh, type of linear mm-hmm. storytelling you know mm-hmm. it's linear yeah. to the player you know but like every player can go about it their own way and this is why the game is so great amnesia is a trope that's used in games a lot but Disco Elysium uses amnesia as a tool to create a character. So you are in the driver's seat of who this person is. They have a past, they have a history, but who they become, how they react to the situation, what politics they have, what personal relationships they have, whether they continue with this alcoholic drug fueled binge that they've been on for a long, long time. Uh, all of this is tied up in in the game so you the player is in an act of character creation Mm -hmm. just to add a little bit more about the world it's set in a very small part of a city called river show am i pronouncing that right yeah you're pronouncing it correctly it's sweet i was i was worried about that (laughs) um which is a city which had a failed revolution and is now kind of like i guess an equivalent of like Hong Kong or Singapore or, or London, I suppose, these hyper-capitalist city-states. But it's it's set in a region that was never reconstructed after the war and it's controlled by unions and strange political forces. And with all of these influences around you, you're kind of trying to solve this case. It's a, it's a detective story at its core, but a psychedelic, <laughs> psychedelically tinged detective story. <laughs> Is that is that about right? Do you think Cosmos? Yeah, I, I think I think that's about right. This um, amnesiac story, you know, it is a very used-up trope, you know, in literature, in TV series, in movies, you know, and in video games also. And, and when we were um, doing marketing for uh, the game, we were like really trying to keep it on the low about the amnesia story because <laughs> uh, because people are a bit tired of this, you know. Like uh, yeah. we, we try to make an amnesia story, but what what people are not tired of are uh, detective stories you know yeah ever since the french gave them to us but we, we tried to make an amnesiac story to end all others i'm not a critic but i think that it's a fairly successful attempt <laughs> i'll <laughs> say that much thanks so let's just move the conversation back a little bit yep uh cosmos can you tell the our listeners about Zaram, the studio that you work for and a little bit about yourself and how the game came to be um, because it, it all started in Tallinn, in Estonia, am I, am yeah, I correct? That's, that's correct. And it actually started quite a uh, ways ago, about 17 years ago, uh, as a Dungeons & Dragons game. 
yeah. in somebody's basement. <laughs> so so uh, 17 years ago, I, I was way, way too little to take part in such D&D sessions. I started orbiting the crew, I think, in 2014, mm-hmm. because I've also like, done a bit of writing, you know, uh, published some books and uh, first I met up with one of the current executive producers and uh, we did some things together and it kind of uh, was an organic mill mm-hmm. into to what is uh, his own studio now. Mm-hmm. Like in 2017 uh, I heard that uh, they're looking for help that at that point they had worked on the game for quite some time already. Mm-hmm. Or a bit at least, so I had something to play when they asked me to check it out. Mm-hmm. So I joined the boat, and things have been like that ever since. There's also like a, a failed takeover of a national cultural newspaper somewhere in there, you know, and, and yeah, other stuff like that, crazy stuff. But yeah. <laughs> now we're here. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, massive congratulations on the success. Thank you. Thank you. So what I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in is without trying to pull back into kind of high flown theory, but this is a game that not only engages deeply with character, but deeply with history. Yeah. There are echoes of the Paris Commune of 1871 in the revolution, disco culture, dance culture, this is a game, although set in the fantasy world, that very much engages with our own history and our own contemporary as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on that topic. During the 17 years of Dungeons and Dragons sessions, there have been played through 2,000 or 3,000 years of history mm-hmm. that this world has, you know. Wow. And, and, and it's the historic aspect, I believe, is, is, it's mostly this grief for the disappearance of the Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. The thought of what could have been, you know, like the failed revolutions in the game, you know. When we look at history, it is a string of failed attempts at something, actually, you know. Yeah. But what we have now is it's gonna going to come crumbling down eventually. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> this Elysium wasn't what we created. It's uh, kind of where we found ourselves. You you mentioned the the failure of the Soviet Union and and kind of the thought of what that could have been i mean would you consider that a form of nostalgia a sense of loss because i definitely got a sense playing the game that this did come from a post-soviet mentality it is i feel also quite driven by the feeling of loss yet uh, i wouldn't go so far as to call us uh, post-soviet artists uh, we like to mm-hmm. think that uh, we are the last soviet artists <laughs> and we have we have landed in the UK and and, and the UK has some pockets of Soviet Union. Um, yeah, there, there's there's a few of us uh, hiding in nooks and crannies around yeah. the city. In a kind of a sense, as much as it is a Soviet game, it is also a British video game, a Hackney video game. Actually, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how uh, welcoming Hackney and Brighton have uh, been to us. This is really interesting that you're saying rather than post-Soviet, you're existing in this in a Soviet milieu. The Soviet Union was explicitly utopian in the kind of discourse it used with its people and with its society you're always moving towards something there was an idea that there was an end point whereas neoliberalism is kind of a fuge it's like a state where nothing kind of happens unless history happens to kind of intercede which at present, it, it it clearly is. There's there's always a carrot and a stick, but it's never your carrot and it's never your stick. <laughs> Talking about Soviet art or, or Soviet writing, what kind of figures influenced 
the narrative of the game. Strugatsky brothers have had a huge influence. Yeah. Also, the, the artworks of supremacists like Lisitsky and uh, Kandinsky. Yeah, yeah, Super, yeah. Supremacist yeah. art. Yeah. And, and the whole futurist movement, uh, how, how, how we express ourselves like with the such minimum. Uh, so yeah. well thought, but su- such minimal movements, you know. Yeah. We're standing on the shoulders of giants, you know. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to ask Zaum, the name of the studio, is that a reference to the language, the futurist language? Yeah, exactly. That's the, <laughs> that they wanted to... That they wanted to happen. Oh uh, yeah, that's phenomenal. I'm I'm in a bit of heaven right now. I've actually got a <laughs> I've actually got a Malevich reproduction on my oh, wall on nice. canvas, which is just beautiful. Yeah, because that's a really interesting time. This futurist uh, moment, uh, that period before thirties. Yeah, and I guess before the revolution itself, where there was a feeling that new worlds could be built not only through political action but through arts and just complete experimentation with new forms of living i I had no idea he'd done this but he'd actually done constructivist ration stamp during the civil war which was just this phenomenal idea that these avant-garde artists are involved in the revolution and they're saying even the way that we're giving out food can be infused with art. Yeah, it was, it was an incredible time in history. And I, I, I definitely felt that echo. Adam Curtis has said that this is how real change happens in the world is by people giving themselves onto an idea, losing their individuality in, in its process, but still giving themselves to the idea of having like art, ration stamps, you know, believing in the future that there's more ahead mm-hmm. than there has been behind us, you know. Certainly mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it these days, you know. Yeah. But yeah, returning to the game and specifically the relationship of literature to the game, I I wanted to to kind of talk a little bit about how you approached a story which was about something that was not just a, a kind of soap opera, but was trying to convey quite deep political and artistic themes and how that process may have been different to, say, writing a novel or poetry or or painting a canvas. The feeling is the same, but you got to take a lot more things into account. Mm-hmm. We read books from left to right, or in Hebrew, we read it from right to left. Yeah. So we got page one, two, three. If he, if he, there, there was a story somewhere about somebody listening to a Sherlock Holmes audiobook and uh, not understanding anything because he later discovered it, that his CD player was on shuffle. Yeah. So like, so like in, in in our game, it's like since there are so many ways the player can interact with the characters, with the story, you know, deciding on their own where to begin. It's like we have to take into account that, for example, in a book that from page one he wants to jump to page ten, you know, yeah. And so it will still make coherent sense and be reactive, you know. Yeah. So it will uh, help suspend disbelief. Actually, I think that from a literature standpoint, it's um, it's it's very hard to read, you know. It's very hard to sit down and read. And uh, video games uh, come to your aid, you know, with the art, mm. the sounds, you know, making reading easier. Mm. So it does the heavy heavy lifting, you know, helping to suspend the disbelief. We can listen to music sitting down. We can interact with it, but we really don't have to be that active with it, mm. as as with the cinema. We, we just sit passively, but literature is something that demands us to be active and if that may interrupt this focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that now literature can rise above other arts. The playing field has been kind of leveled now for literature. Mm-hmm. 
never in the history of video games have had uh, writers so much responsibility and so much decision making. No, no, no. Uh, or a lead designer, of course, is a writer. Or lead yeah. artist is a very good writer, actually. One of our ex- executive producers uh, is a writer. I'm a, I'm a writer myself, even though I produce, you know, I wrote yeah. a bit of a game. And I believe that's, that is why, why this game has such uh, literary quality as compared to other games that have come before. Yeah. Even though there have been very good video games, very good writing. But there were ways that you express qualities that could be said to be literary through mechanical ways as well. And again, I'm going to kind of go slowly because I'm aware there may be people listening who never played a game before yeah. in their life. So Disco Elysium is in the role-playing genre, which descends more or less from Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. In these kind of games, you have skills. Now, this might be you're very good at shooting or you're you're dexterous and can dodge around. But skills in Disco Elysium work in a very, very idiosyncratic way. They talk to you. They give you advice. They offer often conflicting advice at quite important moments. Cosmos, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this skill system and how this allowed uh, literary aspects of the game to, to come to the fore a little bit it's it's quite hard to go into it without spoiling anything but uh, I, I will try um, <laughs> i am of the belief that art is a mirror to society and other people at some may disagree because i believe i'm, I'm the only one in the crew who is a born again capitalist <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, actually like I, I would rather pose it to the listener the situation where you sleep in in the morning you need to get to work Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of decisions that you can make. Should I quickly try to fry myself an egg? Mm-hmm. Frying an egg has such a has cost opportunity. You know, I might miss the, some kind of bus, you know, and have to go mm-hmm. on foot. A lot of voices in your head, like com- competing for what might be the right thing to do. And you actually do not know until you do it. You have to commit to go do it one way or the other. Yeah. I would like to refrain from discussions of the free will, but uh, this is a kind of <laughs> fear. Uh, uh, this is how I kind of feel like uh, and, and how I managed to explain it to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> how it works is like you wake up in the morning you slept in and you need to make these decisions you know your yeah. stomach says yeah you need to eat you know but your sense of duty tells you you gotta get to the job or do you aim for the head or not um... yeah kind of yeah exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was a really great explanation of, of how these skills affect the character. And, and to return to literature, you know, like in terms of psychological investigation, literary prose is, if not unparalleled, then certainly a contender for some of the deepest ways to interrogate like that kind of deep psychology, you know, that discourse that we have going on yeah. in our minds. So, yeah, no, that, I, I thought that was a really great explanation of the skills without ruining it and i've been under instruction by at least four people not to spoil (laughs) anything something else i want to talk about and and i think we can maybe walk the spoiler line a little bit here with some deafness so i want to talk a little bit about world building because you said that disco elysium started as a dungeons and dragons campaign right yeah um, and how many thousands of years of history were there event in, in the campaign? Two, two thousand to three thousand years of history. I would love to get access to those documents. <laughs> <laughs> but what 
struck me is that the world, and especially the city of Revachola Martinez, there are echoes of the real world. You know, there are Karl Marx figures, there are figures that represent NATO to a degree, but it's all kind of somehow out of whack. You have disco becoming a huge thing in a time that's maybe analogous to the late 19th century. So it's, it's kind of like a world that has developed in parallel, you know? Like, yeah. But- but if a few things in life as we know it, if, if like way down in history somewhere, a few things were different, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did those flourishes come about? Was it organic? Did it come from conversation between team members? Beyond the Dungeons and Dragons bit, when you had to crystallize it into products that could be taken on its own merits, how did you navigate that? It's quite simple. If, if, you, if you have a entertainment product that you need to put on the market you make a plan and then you mm-hmm. stick to that plan and while making the plan there are organic discussions held because everybody wants the same thing in the end you know yeah. kind of definitely like as with any creative processes you know what you go with for the first uh, with, with, with the things that you think of are good at first you may discard them for something else later you know so it's, it's an it's organic process it's, it's a wonderful one I loved how the DJs mix with cassette tapes in this world rather than 12 inch vinyls which yeah. I, just, I just thought was wonderful they, they've actually done it with cassette tapes in, in our world also oh. in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but if, the, if the question was about uh, also about politics and uh, Karl yeah. Marx figure it's like uh, and, and here I, I believe I represent the, all of us is that art does not endorse anything politically if it's worthy of its name yeah, we, we don't feel any responsibility or apologize for anything. It was it was quite hard to balance the politics that we have in that uh, fantasy world. If we would add anything more to it, it would detract it from being art. So it was yeah. quite uh, quite a challenge. Yeah. So moving on from that, the politics is an incredible line you've you've walked because in addition to the skills, you have something that's called a thought cabinet. which is kind of like a map of the thoughts and ideologies and I guess you know your worldview politics features quite heavily in this and you treat it very measuredly you know you can train yourself to become a fascist you can train yourself to become a, a communist you can train yourself to become a liberal which some may argue is the worst of all. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, how did you navigate the first question is how did you navigate the line between presenting these ideologies without becoming propaganda or agitprop or whatever and secondly how do you feel that the thought cabinet functions in terms of the overall narrative of the game the the first question which was how did we get it right without being propaganda it was uh, you just go over it and you go over it and just step back from it for a bit and then you go back at it we didn't get it right with the first go you know because the story builds up around it you know some things are changed you know something seems to be too left-leaning too right-leaning we, we didn't actually have like that much discussion but we, we had a lot of tries to get it right you know yeah while uh, the thought cabinet seems like the most innovative thing truthfully old, it has been around for about 10 years in, in robert's novel uh, sacred and terrible a you can see some characters already having this aura about them Mm-hmm. We're, we're super happy how it has randomness to every playthrough. The different this like like in other video games, you have the loot system. You shoot people in the face, and then you rate their corpse. But yeah. in Disco Elysium, you talk to people, loot their ideas, and develop them. You know, you may not end up at the same um, results as the other person ended up. You know, because you have your own biases. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Like you said before we started talking that you would play the game and and if you, if you haven't read, I, I suggest to play the game in a hardcore mode. You're pornographically poor there. So your thoughts become much more important and you also gain more experience. You know, if you want to forget an idea, it costs points, you know, so it's yeah. kind of, it's, it's quite realistic in that regard. If, if you don't have money, you're right, it start to cost. So if, if you want, you can log on to Steam, get the game, help us out, you know, and see like how it works. So just for those who aren't aware, hardcore mode is a way of playing Disco Elysium, which make money and alcohol and drugs which are the, probably the three main things that drive the protagonist who probably <laughs> yeah. should remain nameless, I think. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Hardcore mode makes them even more scarce and you spend a lot of time with a plastic bag picking up things off the floor to try and sell for a few pence in order to get yourself by. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is very uniquely Eastern European um, <laughs> style of gameplay. Ice Pick Lodge, who did Pathologic 2, which is uh, I, I'd recommend to a lot of people as well. Uh, they're a Moscow-based studio, and it's a game yeah. about uh, a plague that hits a small town in a kind of timeless Russia. It was so hard upon release that they had to make easier modes to play the game um, because their view was that the difficulty and the struggle was part of the experience of being in the plague. Um, all the wrestling critics said, oh, the game's too hard. And then they, I think, quite begrudgingly released an easy mode for <laughs> their game. So there's something in this. Uh, I'm careful not to use kind of East-West dichotomies because I think that we are living in a globalised world now. But th- there does seem to be a trend in uh, games that are coming from that part of the world. And again, this, this relates to literature. Hard, you know, hardship, frustration, difficulty. Yeah. Somehow underlie the message more than if you just kind of run through theme park exactly it adds immersion it adds to the mechanics mm-hmm. a good life sadly is a hard life you know if we get everything easy it ain't mm-hmm. that good you know and then we are in a globalized world and we, we, we wrote this in english not because we would be super big fans of english like <laughs> but, but it's, it's it's because english is the lingua franca of these days you know when newton yeah. wrote his principia mathematica in latin you know yeah he did it because Latin was the lingua franca back then, you know, which for most people, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. On that note, I, you mentioned earlier uh, a novel, yeah. Sacred and Terrible Lair, because it's set in the same world. Yeah. Because I've heard whispers that an English translation might be forthcoming. I, I've also heard whispers. <laughs> <laughs> They're level in that regard. Okay, okay. <laughs> Um, have you have you read it in this in yeah, Estonian? Yeah, of course, of course, of course. It's in the same universe and it's uh, separated by thirty years from mm-hmm. the game. Is there much more you can tell us than that, or is there a, a slight enigmatic shroud that should fall over it? Uh, like Fort Cabinet already had, like you could see in some characters that it, it might be a thing, you know, ten years mm-hmm. ago when it was released. I would leave it at that. <laughs> okay, okay, sure. And, and you know, this is this is just what is so interesting to me and exciting to me about the game in the world of literature at least in in the anglophone world things are very very uh what's what i'm looking for they, they, they kind of put in niches so this is science fiction this is literary fiction you know this mm-hmm. is popular fiction um and so on and so forth whereas this 
wonderful game started off as a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Yeah. World building is seems really, really integral to the game. And I, I just kind of wanted to probe your thoughts upon this idea of, of world building and how in creating other worlds that are similar but different to our own, we can tell stories that reflect back into um, the kind of lived human experience. I think that um, <laughs> regarding world building, you know, first you just, you write down a few names that don't sound like they're around here and then you <laughs> ma- then, then you make a map you know which isn't anywhere on this planet you know and put them somewhere yeah. but, but i think that if you can say anything anywhere at all it's not mm-hmm. so like uh, in art you can do anything you know that's the promise of art we may need different words to have better ways of saying it yeah the more words the more ideas we have yeah even it's like the world building is a quite wide term it, it fits a lot of things you know it's like if i write i don't know crime fiction in london with mm-hmm. people that do not exist i'm actually already building a world you know so it's like where is the cutoff point you know i don't know if that answered the question <laughs> no no you definitely did the, the, the cutoff point is i mean I, this may be cut from the final draft, but I think the yeah. cut-off point is middle-class snobbery. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. Uh, uh, <laughs> middle, middle-class snobs have purchasing power. That's why they matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the last point I wanted to, because I think we're kind of running quite quite deep now. The last point I wanted to talk about is replayability. Mm-hmm. Now we've talked a lot about how you've got this thought cabinet that you can build different ideas about your character in. Your choice whether you fry an egg or get out of the house immediately, you know? Yeah, yeah, precisely. As I understand it, the, the main narrative sweeps of the game stay the same, right? Yeah. But it's who you are. And how you, and how you experience the world. Yeah, precisely. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how this replayability differs or has similarities to the experience of reading a book. I myself love books, but yeah. the books have always lied a bit, haven't they? It's, it's your mm. mind playing tricks on you. They they promise that you will see something new, guaranteed, but it's still the same words on the same paper, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just the baggage that you go into it with this creator. And we don't want to take this sweet little life from books. In Disco Elysium, every time you start a new game, you do see new things, you know, you do discover kind of new pages and new words. And, and how we feel is that humankind is only beginning to know or understand what is possible in literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that in, in Western culture, we are like one of the first pioneers who are going to an interesting uh, new place you know and i think that there are almost no books that everybody reads you know nietzsche spoke about it it's the atomization of the culture you know yeah we are, we are all living our own truths we have no universal books mm-hmm. there has to be something that uh, takes that place of universality you know and movies are like one and a half hours like two jokes plot twist and the punchline you know that's it you know yeah, TV, yeah, yeah, yeah. tv is quite good you know these days you know but video games is very shines you know yeah i think I think we probably ran off there. Did you have anything that you wanted to say to our listeners at all? I'm, I'm glad that you're having us, you know. It's really nice being here and sp- speaking to you. And if, 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 if what you hear here is interesting, you know, then log on to Steam, get the game, you know, help us out, you know, and see what all the fuss is about, you know. <laughs> oh, 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 and one last thing. If you were to recommend any books, to people because we are a bookshop. Uh, I would suggest uh, one of my favorites, uh, Victor Pelavin. I believe some of his books are in English also. He's mm-hmm. a Russian writer. 
Uh, well, Cosmos, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, congratulations on the success. Thanks. It's um, been a remarkable journey. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming <laughs> on. Yeah, cheers. I'm a terrible podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Nice speaking with you. Okay, on that note, that is all we have from the isolation station today. Thank you so much again to Cosmos for joining us. Um, that was a really illuminating conversation. Hopefully it will leave you guys thinking about kind of where literature, quote unquote, can uh, take us in the 21st century and, and how it's branching out and adapting to these ever-changing kind of technological times that we're living in. Definitely. At the end of the week, we're back to an older technology, back to the book. Our core constituency. constituency. (laughs) The things things we make money off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's going to be talking to Jesse Kindig, who's a editor at Verso in the US. Jesse will be beaming in from New York, just giving us a sense of what's happening in America and how the publishing community is responding. So yeah, yeah, really looking forward to hearing about that because things over there are pretty wild. (laughs) The sounds of things. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Oh, and I should add, um, Disco Elysium is available on Steam. So if any of you want to play the game, uh, search Disco Elysium Steam and it will come up. Um, and I'd heartily recommend it. And on that note, I think it's goodbye from me, Dan Fuller. And it's goodbye from me, Sam Fisher. Stay safe, guys. Peace out. Look after yourselves Peace and out. enjoy the sun. Indeed. But responsibly. <laughs> yeah, say. at a distance. <laughs> at a distance. Peace, everyone. Bye now. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller and Sam Fisher, joined by Cosmos from Zalm Studios. This show is produced by Dan Fuller with music by Dear Brother. Cheers, everybody.